Every time I've said on this podcast that summer is nearing its end, Laura has stepped up to say, no, no, not yet, not yet. Well, Laura, it's the last day officially of summer. Tomorrow begins fall. You can't disagree with me today. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. And Laura, are you sad? Yeah, it's always sad to see summer end, <laughs> although I am tired of sweating. I will give you that. Like, it, that will be nice. Yes. I think it's supposed to hit, I mean, high, mid to high 80s today, so it's going to go and out And then it'll the be like 61 and, and like tomorrow or Friday, so yeah. The weekend is supposed to be nice and cool, all the mid sixties, and then lows in the fifties. I'm I'm excited, although I do believe we'll get back up into hot temperatures again. Climate change assures us of that. Let's get started. On one or two days every week these days, there's no mail delivery on my street. And until a few months ago, we often had mail delivered hours after dark, later than 9.30, by postal carriers who had to wear headlamps to make sure they didn't trip over broken sidewalks. Turns out, this is a national problem. Laura, they could deliver the mail in the snow, in the rain, of the dark at night, but they can't deliver the mail with this problem. That's funny because I did see a post office worker wearing a T-shirt that said, you know, in snow and rain and sleet and in COVID. So they have that T-shirt. They're walking around with it. Um, this is a problem, though. Some people in on the east side of the Cleveland suburbs have gone eight days at one stretch without mail. And the, the culprit is the same thing that we can point to in every industry, staffing shortages. They just don't have enough workers. And we don't have an exact count. We couldn't get it from the union. We couldn't get it from the Postal Service who asked Bob Higgs, our reporter, to file a FOIA. But hundreds and hundreds of openings, they've had mail or sorry, they've had job fairs. They haven't been able to fill everybody. So what happens is the workers they do have are being stretched really thin. They're working 10 to 12 hour shifts. They're working overtime. They're working on Sundays sometimes trying to get the mail delivered. But this is a it, it seems like a nice job on a lovely day, but this is a job that you have to do in every kind of weather. Well, it takes a toll because you're carrying uh, around really that heavy bag of stuff and it wears on your shoulders. I, I feel bad for yeah. them. When they've shown up at 930 and later at night wearing the headlamp, you just sit back and think, okay, something's wrong here. Because clearly they didn't have somebody to do the route. They're paying somebody else overtime to do it. Uh, and and there are many days. I mean, it it. it lately where one day a week or two days a week, it doesn't come. But I asked the question in subtext this morning, does it matter? I mean, should we now be talking about cutting back delivery days? If I don't get the mail today, it comes tomorrow. What's the big deal? Well, and if people want things overnight, which a lot of people do, those are getting delivered by UPS and FedEx a lot of times. Like if you're getting your Amazon deliveries or you're getting the little Amazon truck that shows up in your driveway. I mean, I know I say it a lot, guys, but in Canada, they don't have mail, at least in Ontario, they don't have mail delivery on Saturdays. And so it means, you know, if you're going to send a letter to Canada, you got it for a birthday, it's got to go way in advance. But I don't think it's negatively affected the quality of life uh, there. So it's something I think that people well, should be Lisa knows considering. This. Throughout the last be a decades, th this has come up fairly frequently. Should they cut back to five days a week or four days a week to save money? And always Congress has said, no, 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 it's six days. It must be six days a week. And 
it, it really has never made much sense. I mean, there was a time when all commerce was done by U.S. mail, but now it's all digital. And so you're talking about getting a bill a day later or something. What is the big deal about Oh, no, I'm not going to well, get my junk mail. And I'm, my I'm a longtime supporter of the Postal up, Service. Right? Um, I will say this. I got an Amazon package yesterday that was delivered by the Postal Service. They do a lot of last mile work for Amazon. And, you know, so they're overloaded. And we've reported on that. They get they got so many packages that Amazon just foisted onto them and UPS and say, here, you get to deliver these. And I, I have had mail consistent mail delivery in my east side suburb. But clearly they can't deliver it. So they, they can't get people. And is it time for America to get rid of its resistance to a reduced delivery schedule? Uh, and, and Laura, you're right. If you order something overnight, that's a separate arm in the post office. And so mm -hmm. that they make good on that. They're paid extra. What we're talking about here is the daily delivery. I can tell you, I am still hearing a lot of complaints from people about theft of mail from mailboxes, that, that there were a bunch of arrests of people who had scammed, I think it was more than a million dollars by stealing checks and changing them. That problem continues. And so if they save money by reducing number of delivery days, maybe they could put it into the security system so people stop stealing the checks and committing fraud. It's a good story by Bob Higgs. It's on Cleveland.com, and I think it's in today's Plain Dealer. Check it out. It's today in Ohio. We've got a close statewide race in Ohio for the Senate. We have kind of a runaway in the governor's race with Nan Whaley's campaign sputtering against Mike DeWine. But what about the other statewide races in the executive branch for attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer and auditor? Are any Democrats making headway against the firmly entrenched Republicans? Lisa, we haven't talked about these races, I don't think, at all. No, we haven't. And sad to say that I don't know if the Democrats are going to make headway in any of these four statewide offices. There are really three reasons that were outlined in the article in Cleveland.com in The Plain Dealer. First of all, Ohio has been trending Republican over the last, you know, eight to 10 years or so. There was a big rightward move in 2016 with Trump taking the state, and then he took it again in 2020. Um, they have controlled Republicans have controlled all three branches of state government for over a decade. And usually midterms, as we know, favor the party that's not in the White House. So that means Republicans. Reason number two, the incumbents are all Republican. That gives them a natural advantage. They have high visibility. They're making rulings. They're having press conferences and, and so on and so forth. They have name recognition and established political connections. And thirdly, the Democrats are just at a disadvantage. There's a lack of familiarity. They only have one-tenth of the campaign funds of their Republican opponents, and most of them have not run for state, or none of them have run for state office, statewide office. So the uh, Democratic uh, challenger for treasurer is Marion Mayor Scott Scherzer. Uh, he was a 2018 running mate with Connie Pillage for governor. The AG Democratic uh, challenger is Rep State Representative Jeff Crossman. He has two terms in his Cuyahoga County Legislative District. The Secretary of State Democrat is Forest Park Council member Chelsea Clark. And the Auditor uh, Democrat uh, challenger is Nelsonville Auditor Taylor Sappington. Haven't heard of any of them. I hate to say that except for Taylor Sappington. Well, I, I've heard of Jeff Crossman. I'm a little bit surprised the AG's race isn't ha getting some fire because, 
Dave Yost has been controversial. He's done stupid things. The thing he did with the the kid that had to get the abortion in Indiana was a huge stain on his reputation. I mean, and he still hasn't apologized for it. Um, he also has entered appearances in all sorts of lawsuits that have nothing to do with Ohio and his harumph, harumph, and I'm going to be as, you know, the conservative Trumpy guy. And so, so there is ammunition there that Crossman could say, is this what you want? It, you know, if you believe in a woman's right to choose, do you want this guy to be defending all of these laws that you think are reprehensible? Um, he also really did not do much with the whole gerrymandering case. He's the attorney general. The law wasn't being followed, and yet he really wasn't on the side of righteousness there. Uh, but really, you're not seeing much from Crossman. He's not landing any blows. Well, you know, to be honest, I haven't seen any really, at least TV ads for any of these races, Republicans or Democrats. And when you're talking about that, you know, Democrats having such a small collective war chest that, you know, they probably can't maybe even afford a TV campaign. So, yeah, this is kind of all of these races are kind of under the radar. And I think, you know, in Ohio, people are, are probably going to say, oh, well, just vote for the incumbent because I, I know his name. Yeah, I suspect you're right. It's today in Ohio. Drive through Cleveland and you're sure to see trash that has been dumped illegally. Even at the proposed site of the new police station, we have so many empty lots in the city, it just seems like people think they can dump their stuff. Cleveland seems incapable of stopping this problem with conventional methods. But Laura, how do they plan to do it now using artificial intelligence? This sounds kind of out there. Well, it basically works using smart cameras that they're going to use this AI model so that if you can see someone dumping on the camera, then that's going to alert law enforcement to go out and maybe ticket them. So they're still testing this. And once it's tweaked and perfected, they'll put it in a couple of spots and see if that works. One would be deployed on the city's east side. One would be on the west side. And then hopefully they could address that issue. My thought is, okay, first of all, I wasn't exactly sure what illegal dumping is, so I looked it up, and it has to be something of like 15 pounds or more. So it's not you leaving, you know, your bag of trash where you're not supposed to, or, you know, your fast food containers or whatever. Obviously, that's littering. That's a problem. But so this is big stuff. And then it's like, well, why are people doing it? Do they just not know where they can leave it? I mean, to me, this is something uh, that you're you treating pay. a symptom. I mean, and if you got a bunch of tires you got to get like, rid of, you got to pay somebody to dispose of them legally. But we're going to be ended up paying for all this artificial intelligence to catch people doing it. So can we figure out a more easy way yeah, of people getting rid it, of their it's stuff? Just, it's it's been surprising when they started dumping it at the site of the police station, it was, it was kind of put a focus on it, right? It's if you can't keep the site of the police station safe from illegal yes. dumping, can you really save any neighborhood? And it's, it's rampant. I mean, it, you don't have to drive very far on a side street to find where somebody's dumped a bunch of stuff and then, Oh Yeah. And that does affect your quality of life, right? It affects all of the people that live around there. It affects everybody who drives on there. It makes you think that like the city doesn't look really safe or nice. So I I get it. And I'm all for enforcing the law. I just think that this is a symptom of a bigger issue. And, you know, obviously all the issues that Cleveland has had with recycling and their trash pickup. I mean, I just think this should be 
investigated further, like what could they do for public well, education building houses on all on those empty side. lots, as Lee Weingart proposes to do if he's county executive, would leave fewer places where they could dump illegally. Part of our problem is the depopulation of Cleveland neighborhoods. It's today in Ohio. So when the Cleveland Browns lose a game that seemed virtually unlosable because of unfathomable incompetence at every possible level, is it a crime if a fan throws a water bottle at team owner Jimmy Haslam? Lisa, one police department apparently thinks it is. I'm not sure public opinion would agree. I don't know. I mean, throwing an object at somebody is assault, in my opinion, but uh, let's let's go from there. Uh, 51-year-old Rocky River resident Jeffrey Miller was arrested at the Browns Stadium on Sunday. He was caught on video by an NFL reporter in the final seconds of that Sunday loss to the Jets. He you know, uh, was seen throwing a water bottle at owner Jimmy Haslam as Haslam walked into the tunnel that leads to the locker room. It appears that he was hit on the right side and Haslam, after that happened, he looked up and pointed into the stands. He was not injured. Uh, Mr. Miller was accused of assault, disorderly conduct, and failure to comply. I don't know that he's been charged yet in municipal court. That may be happening, you know, pretty soon here. But the Browns organization says that Miller will be permanently banned from First Energy Stadium. He was arrested after he left the stadium because apparently what happened was, uh, according to a Cleveland Police Department report, they saw that on the surveillance camera, they alerted officers. And so they were able to catch Miller as he was leaving the stadium, but he refused to stop. And so uh, that's where the failure to comply comes in. And he appeared to be drunk at the time. I know that Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer reached out to Mr. Miller. I don't think that we've gotten a hold of him. Yeah. And clearly, we're lucky that Jimmy Haslam wasn't injured. You throw a, a water bottle, I don't know how full it was, but that has significant weight. And it could actually hurt you pretty badly if you're hit the wrong way. And as upset as fans were that they could lose that unlosable game, you just can't resort to physical violence. Uh, They're lucky, I guess, from law enforcement purposes that he did it in camera view because there's footage. He's not going to be able to deny it. And while a lot of fans were very angry with the team ownership, particularly following the Deshaun Watson episode, to lose a game the way they did uh, just caused a huge amount of frustration. Yeah, but that's condoning. We can't condone Yeah, you don't. Yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't throw a water bottle at somebody. You could he could have seriously injured him. So uh, it's good that he didn't. It's today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish took the strange step for this year's budget of telling all departments to lose their vacant positions, something that went down pretty badly with the directors of the department. On Tuesday, Laura, we learned from the medical examiner what a terrible idea this was. What is the cost? I mean, I think most people could have told you this was a really silly and dishonest move to try to balance the budget and show that you were having a low budget. But yes, this is very real. Uh, the medical examiner's office is off its budget by $2.8 million. So the county is going to have to pay that money out of its reserves. And there were 10 positions that were not budgeted for when they were doing their biennial budget for 22 23. And they they were actually in the process of filling it at the time, but said, nope, we're just not going to put that money in the budget. So about $1.5 million is for the salaries. And there's other costs like 
ballooning cost that they hadn't expected, a 300% increase in the price of helium that they have to pay for, $600,000 in added expenses for positions to help clear backlogs and fill um, and supply chain issues, higher material prices yeah, just the, like anywhere the else. The idea that, hey, whatever positions are unfilled right now, we're not going to fill them was preposterous. Anybody that's ever managed any kind of staff would be aghast at that. It's just that, that, that at that moment in time, you have this many openings and we're just cutting you off. I know Prosecutor Michael O'Malley raised hell about this, saying... I. I can't do the job if I can't fill the positions. So, but it was an artificial bid, I think, at a time when Budish was still thinking of running for re-election to make it look like he had control over the budget, and it was artificial, and now we will see those costs come out. I imagine other departments will do the same thing. Yeah. The budget director says that most of the departments are actually under budget because they can't fill the positions that they have open, which staffing shortages again, right? And what's really worrisome with the medical examiner's office is that the office's nine doctors are each handling about 250 autopsy per year. If death rates continue at the same pace, they could be pushed closer to the maximum of 325 which is the caseload allowed by accrediting agencies. You can't go over that or you can't be have your accreditation. So they're trying to find ways to encourage more people to am- enter the field and hire more, but they are losing three pathologists to Franklin County, which is paying their doctors $100,000 wow. more money, per so. year. It's a lot of money. And I mean, you can't do an autopsy if you don't have the That's right personnel. For the next I mean, county you have to have it. It's today in Ohio. Could Ohio's temporary legalization of abortions created by court edict be extended? Lisa, we heard that there was a rush to clinics to schedule abortions after a judge stayed Ohio's heartbeat law for consideration of whether it is constitutional, but it wasn't a long stay. Is it going to be longer? It could be. According to ACLU attorney Frieda Levinson, who's representing uh, Ohio abortion providers in this lawsuit, she says that Hamilton County Common Pleas Judge Christian Jenkins has mentioned, uh, you know, wanting to pass a second temporary restraining order that in a Monday hearing that they had. If this TRO is issued, it would make abortions up to 22 weeks legal in Ohio until October 12th. But this would come after a hearing on the October 7th on a more permanent injunction as arguments continue in this case. And basically what this is hinging on is uh, the Ohio Constitution, it, does it confer abortion rights via, via its Equal Protection Clause? And what is the meaning of liberty in this Equal Protection Clause? So this ruling, you know, if it goes through, is likely to be appealed and go to the first court of appeals, which has a Democratic majority of four to two. And it could eventually wind up in the Ohio Supreme Court, which we know is has a 4-3 uh, Republican majority there. Kelly Copeland with Pro-Choice Ohio urges women to seek care and contact clinics immediately while they have this little hiatus from the fetal heartbeat law. And uh, Right to Life President Mike Gonadakis says there's no guaranteed right to abortion in the Ohio Constitution. And he said that this appeal schedule will probably take months to resolve. What I find interesting on this is that Dave Yost, we talked about him earlier, who's never hesitated to step in and, and strut, has not appealed the stay. 
And he is running for re-election. He does know that most Ohioans favor the right to choose. And I think it's instructive that maybe for the first time ever, he's not stepping forward in a controversial issue to make his thoughts known. I thought this this stay would be appealed immediately. And it hasn't been, right? There's no appeal of the stay None yet. None at all. But, you know, the, like like Gondadaka said, he thinks there will be an appeal on this second temporary restraining order. And then we'll have to see what happens after October 7th when they, you know, have a ruling on the preliminary injunction, which would be a much longer, you know, hold on the fetal heartbeat law. Well, does anybody but Dave Yost have the standing to file that appeal? Mm -hmm. This is about Mm -hmm. the stay of an estate law. And so if he doesn't stand up to do it, it's remarkable how silent he is Mm -hmm. because he's not normally silent. I bet he's scared that if he steps forward on this one, he's going to lose some votes. We'll see. It's today in Ohio. How many Ohioans might be affected by President Joe Biden's controversial plan to forgive as much as $20,000 in student loans? Laura, you and I were talking about this yesterday. You weren't surprised by the number, but I was. Yeah, 1.5 million Ohioans and the debts of around 750,000 could drop to zero. I mean, think about it. We got 11 million people in Ohio. I mean, that's a good chunk of it, right? That we that people have this this debt. And we're talking about $20,000 in federal student loans for borrowers who receive Pell grants. Those people generally have a lower income, as much as $10,000 for other borrowers. And nationwide we're looking at 40 million that could be eligible for some relief and about half of those could see the entire remaining balance discharged. Ohio is actually one of the most affected states up with Mississippi, Louisiana and West Virginia, which are not usually Is that because our tuition has be become so with. out of control because Republicans for the last 20 years have been cutting back on the subsidies to public education? <laughs> I don't know. That's a really good question. Obviously, college costs have have grown here just incredibly even since I was in college. But apparently 40% of all adults who ever attended college in Ohio will owe less or or nothing on their student loans. So that's a, I mean, 40% of anybody who's ever been to college in Ohio. That's huge. And just so you know, none of this, according to the education department, this, the U.S. education department, will go to any individual or household in the top 5% of incomes in the United States. So when Republicans immediately came out and said, you're, you know, you're rewarding the rich, okay. uh, it's, it's not interesting the richest. That it's such a high number, but I do think it speaks to the cost of education in Ohio. It's today in Ohio. What's the background on the Cleveland native who has just been named Ohio Librarian of the Year? It's, it's always good to talk about a good news story in Cleveland. Yeah, the 2022 recipient of Librarian of the Year is Casey Armstrong. She's the director of the Euclid Public Library, and she's been there since 2013. She is the first black woman to be so honored and the third black library director to be honored for this award. Um, a lot of why she did get it is because During the pandemic, she and her library helped bridge gaps in virtual learning. They offered college prep courses, free meals, and they even worked with area schools to address pandemic-related learning loss. And she's also uh, on the Ohio Library Council, and she's uh, on this push for more diversity among librarians. She also trains new directors and trustees, and uh, she just she has a lifelong love of reading that managed 
to become a career for her. She loved reading as a child. She moved around a lot in Cleveland, but then she kind of, you know, settled in uh, Glenville. And she went to the local library very frequently, and she has very good memories of wandering among the stacks and finding books to read. And she thought about making it a career while she was mentoring at uh, Youth Opportunities Unlimited. And so she went and got her master's degree in 2003. And looking at her picture in Cleveland.com, she looks like she's about 18 years old. Well, you know, Cleveland has two of the most esteemed library systems in the world in Cuyahoga County and Cleveland. They regularly recognized for just how good they are. It's something that I don't think people realize nationally. So it's entirely appropriate that a librarian from Cleveland is the librarian of the year for the state, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I love our library systems. And can I just say, I got an email yesterday from the county library, which I realize we're talking about a different system here, but they have like free produce that they're giving out to people. I mean, you think about libraries for books, but they are just community centers that are coming up with all sorts of ways to help people. Hats off to them. Cleveland law firms, like many employers, including the Postal Service, struggle to attract diverse candidates for job openings. How is Case Western Reserve University offering the help? They are launching a continuing education program that has a free curriculum for local business leaders and practicing lawyers. The idea is to bolster their credentials in diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is called the Academy for Inclusive Leadership Development. It's also open to non-attorneys and case law law students. It claims to be the first of its kind in the country, and it's going to run with this curriculum from October through April, in-person Saturday sessions, plus online components, and there's going to be presenters who are experts in diversity training, leadership, human resource management, and they're going to have lectures and real-world simulations to address structural bias, microaggressions, and attorney-client relationships. And and (laughs) the result of this will be? So hopefully they will have more diverse law firms because in a ranking of 36 municipalities, Cleveland ranked last in lawyers that are people of color with 6.14% and also next to last in the percentage of female associates at 38.7%. The only city they were wow. higher than was Salt Lake City, which <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to let you think on that. But so this is great. And remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Case Western Reserve was also starting a a leadership program for executives of color. So I really love that they're stepping up in this space. And I mean, they're a Cleveland University. One of, I mean, they are ranked the best in Ohio, if you look at US News and World Report. And they are really looking at some of the issues in the city and helping the existing infrastructure we have here. So that's great. You Lawyers who complete the program get a continuing legal education credit. And the goal is basically to make us all think more diverse and, and have better it relationships and get more people It might also harken back to our previous story the about the cost of education. If the cost of education in Ohio has become prohibitive, which is why so many people in Ohio are affected by the student loan forgiveness, maybe we're making it more challenging for people of color to go to law school and we should take down some of the barriers so there are more candidates for the jobs. That's a really good point. Again, this is I don't think this is just treating the symptom, but you're right. It's not getting to the base of why there are so few um, 
But I love that they're talking about that bringing an educational institution into this, then the law firms and the businesses don't have to develop training programs themselves, which could be expensive. And you know, if we were having a robust government, because we only get to do this every four years, if this were competitive, an issue that could be debated is making college more affordable. But we haven't heard any talk about that all year. That 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 affects yes. so many Ohio families. It's going to affect yours very soon, Laura. And so, I know I, I I have said since my kid was born that I hope it straightens itself out because it can't keep the cost can't keep ballooning like this. No one will be able to send their kids to college. But so far, I am not seeing what and without any kind a robust election campaign, you don't get to debate those issues. That's what the campaigns are supposed to be. Every four years, you debate the direction of the government that you're voting on. We're seeing it in Cuyahoga County. We're seeing a robust battle between two candidates for county executive, both very different, both strong in their views. And so we're talking about a lot of cool issues. We're not doing it on the statewide level because the campaign challengers are just not robust. And it's a shame because that means we'll go four more years without fixing the price of higher education in Ohio because there's not going to be a mandate to do so. Right, because you're talking about, we talk about the national government and what they're doing, and I think it has been a, a conversation in national issues. But Ohio could fix the problem by supporting right. its state schools more. You know, they, they've they cut back and cut back, meanwhile, giving people tax breaks and taking away local government funds and, and being able to say, we're, we're fixing the tax structure in Ohio, but how are you going to get people to stay in Ohio if they can't afford to send their kids? And if you can't afford, if you can't afford to go to school in Ohio, but then the how are you going no to stay here after graduation? Because nobody is really pushing them during this campaign. So it'll be four more years. It's today in Ohio. That does it for a Wednesday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Thursday.